administered by Desert Pines High School. Hosted by Philip Adizan. KJAG Radio presents to you Jack in the Dog. stories as previously stated in the last episode four stories um due to me being gone for how many weeks long but um let's just get the show on the road oceanic absurdity an account of nautical horror by bryce simmons a bestial tentacle reached bre- reach the surface with a tremendous display of aquamarine power. The resultant shower of water rained down in a torrent upon the deck, drenching the observing passenger. A groan, impossibly deep, reverberated from the waters. An ancient guttural below that shook the 3,000-ton ship. Near full erection, the tentacle towered over the vessel at an imposing 400 feet in height with a width of about a sixth of that, and a thickness of proportions equal to several of the ship's decks stacked together. The colossal appendage weighed no less than several thousands of tons, and if brought down on the ship would surely bisect it from the sheer weight alone, regardless of how much force was applied to its descent. If the physical proportions of the anomalous creature adhered to those of its lesser-sized yet scientifically classified kin, would seemingly exist on a scale beyond even fictionally fathomable extremes of cephalopod life. Three columns intersected by innumerable rows of relatively small suctioning protrusions extended from the meaty colossus. Though no sound could be heard, each bow-shaped nodule clenched and unclenched in excitement or possibly thirst. While the great appendage to which they were attached merely swayed with apparent disinterest at the vessel it dwarfed, observing with a sense of near-maddening fear from the railed topmost deck an elderly man, dwelling in the blurred twilight between sixty and seventy feet, conjured a scene of Lovecraftian quality. The tentacle, obviously an extension of greater body, would probably at least maintain a proportionally reality consistent with its presented immensity. Despite the horrific nature, there are yet to appear any suggestions of a paranormal origin, leading to the conclusion that nature had simply produced a terrifying anomaly. Going by the strain of logic, the man then speculated with a summation based on the observation that only half of the full appendage had cleared the water, that whatever creature existed below the surface, probing the waterless realm, held claim to a truly monstrous immensity. It would have its body would have to weigh countless tons, possibly of comparable weight to the surrounding water its presence displaced. For sustenance, it would need have needed to feed on either a genocidal nut of exponentially smaller beings, or a few like-sized ones. The nightmarish contemplation strained the wizened mind of the nearest centen- centennial, and he soon fell to a defeated heap of the deck. <clears throat> As if sensing its effortless victory over the will of its audience, the tentacle began writhing in morbid ex- excitation. The nodule-ridden underbelly began un- 
undulating in a rhythm that suggested the regurgitation of some substance, but no mouth existed for a projectile to exit. Instead, to the horror of the helpless onlooker, the tentacle lowered towards the ship, gradually shadowing the entire surface, stopping just inches from the wooden paneling of the floor, flooring and mere centimeters from the man's face. The tentacle seemingly froze with an unexpected rigidity. Centimeters from the stunned by both fear and relief, the man remained under the claim of the once encroaching tendril. After what felt like an aeonic passage of seconds, the tentacle, in a truly disgusting dematerialization, lost what could only be described as structural integrity of a biological nature. Instantaneous cellular decomposition plagued the thing, degrading its entire form with a rapidity never before seen in an animal of land or sea. It simply diffused an almost gaseous suspension of particles before dispersing to nothingness by wave-borne winds, an estimated weight of thousands of tons evaporating into either by into ether by divine intervention or some inexplicable agent of physiological destruction. Oh, thank God, thank God Almighty, exalted the man, safe from the colossal horror once set on besieging his ship, although still aff afflicted by the subsistence Subsistent tremblings of trauma, he had regained a comfortable sanity. He rose to his feet and approached the railing, curious not only of the fate of the creature, but also of any salvageable parts floated to the surface for collection and presentation. At that moment, the concepts of optimism, happiness, and a man-dominated world were immediately ejected from his mind. Through the partial transparency of the water he witnessed, an enormous fang detached from a dissolving form. After a few seconds of diminishment, the waters were completely clear and brought a bleaky, grave elucidation. Below the creature that planned to destroy the man's ship existed a much larger thing. A grand horde that did not even care to abide by a general anatomical framework. A mass of absurdly large limbs, features, and expressible tangents of body that seemed to only serve a lethal purpose hovered below. At its center, which spanned a diameter around the vessel of comparable ratio to the earth set in the center of the sun sat an eye embedded in a cavity in it of abyssal darkness. The people, a red sun of dismal focus, gleamed with fiery luminescence that would shame the greatest configurations of hell. A staggering heat radiated from the depths of the water, yet did not cause it to boil, a hatred transcending the once stark barrier of ocean and air. Whether he came to the conclusion of his own cognition or by the indoctrination of that impossible entity, it is not certain. He conjectured that this aqua god was the true procreator of all earthen life. If the academic's claim of life arising from the primordial organisms of the sea held any merit, this creature could reasonably have been the progenitor of those azoic life forms. Beset by a dismal recognition, the man surrendered to the sovereignty of the god, as if resistance was even an option and allowed his mind to unravel out the obscene morbidity before him. As unconscious dawned, he laughed to himself when a final irony became apparent to him. The first threat, the mammoth octopus-like thing that reared a lone appendage, was probably the prey of the abysmal abomination beneath it, a foe that could rival a conglomerate of naval fleets was mere food to a much more sinister entity. Just when you think you've seen the apex form of horror, a great depravity trumps it. This momentary lapse in humor gave the man a grim peace of mind that allowed him to ignore the growing intensity of that already fierce stare.
In those last moments of existence, he expelled the deep, resonant laughter at the visible horizon of the ocean instantly, evaporated and was replaced by a rising hellscape of sanguine flame. That concludes our first out of four stories coming on the show. Again, I will be telling four stories on each podcast for the next few podcasts. As a thank you for being so patient while I've been gone. Um, Again, that story was found on the Creepypasta website, like all of the other stories that I will be telling. Now, let's move on to the second. as in speech. The mind, a realm that is mysterious to me even to this day, though I take refuge there during the long hot days to get away from the bright burning sun and escape there in the afternoon, when the sky is grey, the storm clouds and the sun has all but receded, the mind's true nature eludes me. Never will it let me see it the shadowiest depths, caves at loftiest mountain peaks. But as of this writing, I can still not say for sure what is that I saw? Strange dreams of bright white lights peering through my window still wake me on quiet summer nights. I shudder to think of it. Now I will share my own story with the world. Perhaps someone will listen. The true beginning of my story started with the day I was born. My fascination with thought and the mind had always confused my parents as well as my friends and classmates in my school in a small hometown in western New Jersey. They never understood the possibilities that the human mind held. If only they could see me now, the wreck of a human being that I've become. Insane is what the tall men in long white coats call me, but I assure you I'm much more than sane. I'm the only one that sees. As I grew up, my love for studying the human mind did not waver. My obsession only grew stronger. I was given all the books on psychology and human anatomy I could read, soaking up the precious drops of information. I was 32 years of age when I was finally satisfied with my research. Finally, as my studies and my prolonged childhood came to an end, I decided to conduct what I considered to be my first true experiment. My first subject was a young woman with dark hair and blue eyes, probably about 20 years old. It was a matter of getting her to cooperate. Having her knocked out, I simply put her in the trunk of my car. I drove home. Night replaced evening and as my subject regained conscious. The first part of the experiment was to run a few tests. Simple things. I exposed her to electric shots and slashed her limbs to test her ability to withstand pain, monitoring her brain's reactions with a homemade device. The one question she asked, the only words she spoke to me throughout the whole process consisted of one word, why. Alas, the test proved too much for her and she perished, bloody and mangled. Her body was cut up into manageable pieces and disposed of, and I needed a new tester. My second subject was a bit younger, 16 years of age at most. I lured the brown-haired, bright-eyed youth with promises of fame as the star of a television advertisement. I proceeded to hit his head with a crowbar, leaving him unconscious on the ground, a few feet away from my vehicle. Again, my subject was taken to the testing room, where he was exposed to rigorous tests, having skin punctured with wires to test his skin's resilience, and having his brain probed through a small cavity that I had drilled in the front of his skull. This time, I put the subject under a strong anesthetic to minimize complaints and screaming. 
The subject did not survive the test, but I did gain some valuable data. I disposed of yet another body, this time feeding the scraps of flesh to the rats that had made their home in my cellar. My third subject, I knew by name. In fact, he was one of my best friends. Clyde Armberg, a stout man with a short white beard, 50 years of age. Once again, his head connected with my crowbar. Once again, anesthetic was administered. Once again, limbs were strapped in. Apparatus created loud buzzing sounds. This time, I didn't notice. My neat round hole was drilled into his skull. The other, the other end was connected to a large box containing the components of the device, which was connected to the output. A pair of glasses modified so that the lenses were small LCD screens. A switch was flipped and my device began decoding his brain signals. I was about to unravel the mystery of human thought, read a mind and discover humanity's true nature, or so I thought. Large red eyes suddenly appeared to stare at me in the face. They moved away from me to reveal a scarred, pale body. It smiled. It moved forward a step. It didn't stop smiling. Behind waves of emotion and sudden excruciating pain that pervaded my chest, I slowly began to understand what that was. I was staring at. I was staring at the true face of madness. Three bright lights appear from the solid white ground and float up to the level of the figure's head, blinding me and obscuring his still smiling face. As I slowly became accustomed to the spheres of light that radiated in my direction, I looked up again to see the pale red-eyed figure in a torn gray clothes looked somewhat familiar. Oh, wait. It was the one of the one of the face I woke up to my mirror on cold early mornings when the sun rays had not yet warmed the ground. The one who kept me comfortable in my hours of loneliness. It was me, and I welcomed my transformation. My modified glasses had fallen off my face hours ago, and yet my vision was unchanged. Finally, after an amount of time that seemed like months, the vision faded, faded away. I was only out for about a better day. I was satisfied with my discovery, and I began to write my work for the world to marvel at. Two years passed before the face appeared again, smiling, cheerful as ever. The figure opened the door to my study, leaving it slightly ajar. It ambled towards me, extending its hand. Suddenly, a shining, thick, metallic blade appeared from its chest and extended it to mine, puncturing my skin. I awoke in a hospital. My neighbor appeared to have heard my screams. The doctor insisted that I had stabbed myself with a letter opener and that though no vital organs were injured, I still needed rest. My work remained unpublished. The images of the man and the light still haunted me now. And now, even in this padded cell in which I am often allowed to practice my writing, I am sometimes visited by the pale red-eyed figure. But even he just sits and smiles at me now, shaking his head in disgust. We are now halfway through our stories. Again, I will be telling a fourth story at the end of this, so make sure to be to stay tuned for it. Again, that story was found on Creepypasta website. And now let's move on to our third story of the night. Stonehenge by Derpy Spaghetti Stonehenge is one of the greatest mysteries of our world. Erected almost 6,000 years ago, these 10-ton slabs of stone make up one of the seven wonders of ancient times. 
but how did it get there, and why? Nanook stepped cautiously on the grass, his footsteps carefully muffled. The lone hunter had been stalking his prey for hours, the animal still unaware of his presence. It gazed around the plains before returning to graze in the tall grass, its shiny coat shivering slightly as it did. Nanook crept even closer, the grass making a soft hushing sound masking his presence in the wind. The blazing golden yellow of the grass seemed to shine under the harsh sun. He looked around before noticing a small bead of water running down his forehead. Sweat. He knew he had to get out of the plains and into the shade before heat exhaustion and dehydration wore him down. But it seemed such a shame to waste all that time trekking the animal just to give up. Just a little while longer. He had to get some food for his tribe. Coming home empty-handed meant that he wouldn't eat tonight making the hunt even more tougher tomorrow. He grunted, venting out hot air from his nose. He would succeed today, even if it meant risking death to do so. The animal had to run a large plane just over the hill. Nanook stalked it slowly, making sure it stayed below the gr grass so as not to be spotted and ruin his chance. The animal, only about 100 meters off, would not be spooked if he got close. Simply going across this hill was probably enough to scare it, but he needed to be—he needed a clear shot. He drew his bow off his shoulder and took out one of the few arrows he had. Coming to the breast of the hill, he knocked the arrow and drew his elbow. He breathed out a long stream of air blowing from his lungs before letting the arrow fly. It made a whistling sound as it streaked through the air, and it hit its target straight into the side. The beast fell over, a burst of blood discoloring the grass below. Nanook grinned, the adrenaline from a shot on a target bursting through him. He threw caution to the wind and sprinted down the hills toward his target. It would be easy to make a coup de grace to the coup de grace this time. The animal was already beginning to die. He drew his spear, the bull reed strapped sliding off him slowly. His prey lowered its head as he arrived, and he decided that the final blow would be unnecessary. He grabbed its leg and began to drag it off before he noticed something. In the distance, about four or five hundred meters away, there was a structure of some kind. Ignoring everything else, he started off towards the monument, dragging his prey cumbersomely along beside him. The animal weighed more than it ever seemed to when it was alive, making the relatively short walk seem like a monumental hike. But if he were going to, but he wasn't going to miss this. His footsteps make a soft shuck shuck sound as he walked. He carried it onto the monument. The grass swayed in the in the wind, though as he came closer he noticed that the grass seemed to gradually flatten down, as if bound down to a mighty being. He smiled before settling down his prey and turning around up close. The monumental structure seemed even more unbelievable than it had been in the distance. He gazed up at it, shielding his eyes from the blazing sun with his large hairy hand. His jagged fingernails created a strange shadow over his face as he held his ever-wavering hand up to the light. The rock pillars of the structure glared dully down on him, as if to say, go away. This palace, Nanook realized, was meant for something bigger. Ignoring this and all other instincts telling him to run in a haze of morbid curiosity, he stepped into the ring. Inside, Nanook could see everything about this place. It was a large circle its edges defined by stone slabs standing upright like dominoes, holding up other slabs on top of them. The dark gray pillars cast glaring shadows down into the middle of the circle, making the shape of a crescent moon. He walked up to a single pillar 
his eyes darting around the place as if to watch for something that wasn't there. The way the grass bent down towards the center of the circle before wholly disappearing, the sun, the way the sun seemed to brighten nearer to the middle of the circle, everything about it offset him. Just a little bit. Still, he had known more about this place, more about the way it worked, enough to explain er away everything strange about it. He wanted no need, no, he wanted, no, needed to know more. He came up to a stone pillar. The smooth stone seemed to glow in the mid-afternoon sun. The heat almost radiated off the stone. He looked at it before cautiously reaching his hand out. Then he touched it. Every bone in his body screamed out with pain, created a single wavering howl. He drew his hand away and staggered backwards. The pain still racking his body. Waves of it washed over like his seas, washing over rock. The frothing agony viciously attacked him, making him fall heavily onto his stomach before losing con consciousness. He closed his eyes for the final time before all the life drained away from him. A mortal had desecrated their meeting place. They could no longer go where they had gone so many times to discuss great matters that a mind like humans could never understand. They had worked tirelessly for years upon years to put this planet into perfect balance to try to help its pitiful creatures reach the pinnacle of art, philosophy, and science. But that was all gone now. It was a shame to lose so much from a simple man running his hand along a stone pillar. Ah, oh, well. They still had more tries to get this right. Time and nature would wear away this place now that was no longer protected. It would be interesting to see where the creatures of this planet went without help, but that would be a matter for later. For now, they simply had to find a new place to go. Stonehenge, a meeting place of the gods. The great stone slabs decorating the land weren't put there by mortal man, but rather by God. So why, you ask, do they no longer answer to our prayers? That's simple. They've moved on. We are but one in the line of many, and they have long forgotten us since. That story was also found on the Creepypasta website, and if you've come this far, stay tuned. We still have an extra story to get through, as well as our next podcast. Remember, we will be having a fourth story in that one, so... If you're hearing this one, make sure to check that one out after since it will be published. But now on to our final bonus story. Beings of the Forest by Salman Shaheed Khan This story was one of the scaring stories my grandmother used to tell me as a child. I cannot verify its authenticity or provide any proof of it having originated from a real experience, except from the fact that nearly everyone in my mother's family knew of the story and can relate to it to me accurately to the slightest detail. The story goes that there was a man of around 25, 25 years named Pato, who was my maternal grandfather's great uncle of some sort, or a relative in any case, and he used to live in a village somewhere. I should remind of the readers that this story is from a time where the subcontinent was still ruled by British, and villages were far and few between, separated by often thick subcontinental jungles and the road networks, where it's nothing of the sort we are used to. Pato was once invited to attend a wedding in another village. He traveled to the village on foot during the day, and unfortunately, due to some delays, it was already getting dark by the time he was on midway back to his own village. The path was a narrow one, winding through thick jungle and traveling on it after dark was quite dangerous. 
Sopata was getting quite nervous, aware, aware of his surroundings more and more by the movement. Robbers and highwaymen were about the best he could hope to meet on the road, since tigers and other beasts often come out to hunt in the dark. He could not even run properly if that were to happen, since the dress he was wearing had pants that would surely trip him over a doti. It was then when Pato came across a house in a sort of cleaning in the middle of the jungle. There was a woman sitting outside the house, cooking something in a large pot, and she called to him as he passed. Traveler, would you like some food and a place to stay for the night? Pato was somewhat taken aback, since it was strange for a woman to be living alone in the middle of the jungle, and stranger yet that she would invite a complete stranger passing by into her house for the night. However, these were the times when people were often very hospitable and grateful of having some place safe to stay for the night. Pato took up the offer. He was fed a fair meal and the woman seemed to be friendly enough. The food and the warmth of the night put him at ease, so he started to become quite drowsy. The woman made a bed for him on the floor, choosing to sleep on the farther end of the fairly large room herself. Pato's bed was made right up against the table on which rested the only source of light in the dark bright burning candle. As he lay down, he felt much too exhausted from the day to even get up and blow out the candle himself. He tried covering his surface under the sheets, but that still did not help since there were tiny holes in his sheets through which he could see the candle. He could also see the woman sitting down on her bed through a similar hole, still sitting up, so he asked her kindly to blow out the candle for him. What he saw next quickly pushed out any semblance of drowsiness from his eyes and replaced it with a gut-wrenching, sickening, and petrifying terror. His eye grew larger under the sheets as he saw the woman sitting down stretch her arms slowly, steadily to the cover, to cover the distance from her bed to his bed, the candle above it, and smother the flame. If the sight of a snake-like stretched-out arm had not been frightening enough, the last view of the woman's face as the light went out was definitely. Her face was twisted, terrible with wide hungry eyes under which her wild hair gave the impression of a wild animal. She was looking right at him lying as he lay there with the lights when the lights went out. The wry smile curled on her face. It was the face of death. Pato lay there in utter shock for a while at, while at loss what to do. He could not simply run. He could never make it out of the house. The creature would be onto him in an instant with its stretching limbs. He could also not stay there for much longer. Who knew what, who long, how long it would be before the creature did whatever it had lured him there for. So Pato thought of a plan. The best plan he could come up for it with the given situation. I need to pee, he announced, hesitantly. Okay, the toilet is at the back of the house, said the thing. That's okay, he said. I can just do it in the bushes outside. Saying this, he got up and went outside, squatting behind the bushes. The creature, meanwhile, was at the door, looking at him each moment. Can you give me some privacy? I can't go about my business like this, he half-yelled, half-pleaded from behind the bush. The woman went back into the house after hearing that, which was lucky since Pato needed every moment's advantage he could get. He quickly took off his pants. His dhoti allowed him to, himself to sprint quietly, slipped out of the bush, and started running as fast as he could. The thing realized what had happened, though, and came quickly after but Pato kept running, never looking back once, even though the thing kept shouting at him to stop and come back. Finally, just as he seemed he would give up himself, the thing stopped chasing him, but it shouted something at which he refroze Pato's insides just before he, he was out of its earshot. You can run, Pato, for my sister will be waiting up ahead to greet you, and she can run much faster than I can. This, however, was not true. 
Pato ran for it seemed like hours to him, but there was no sister lying in ambush on the path ahead. He made it seem he made it back home just as the roosters were screeching. He was breathless, feverish, and quite delirious. I would like to say that it ended well for Pato, but it did not. He is said to have died of the fever he had got that night, never recovering from the terror, terror, but not before letting his family and the village know of the terrifying day, danger lying in the wait for them in the dark jungles. our fourth and final extra story for jag and dark again we will have an extra fourth story in the next podcast which should be published if you're listening to this one so be sure to check that one out um again that story was found on the creepypasta website like many other stories and you can submit your own scary stories at kdragonthedark at gmail.com maybe you'll even have the chance to tell me story. As far as that goes, this has been your host, Philip Edison, signing off. Only on. Jack in the Dark.